episode 90 of No Guitar Is Safe, featuring Alan Parsons and Jeff Coleman, and also featuring sneak previews of their new record. Alan Parsons' album, The Secret, which is available April 26th, is brought to you by Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com. Guitar Player, play better, sound better. Sometime near the end of the last millennium, on a sprawling ranch high atop a Southern California mountain ridge overlooking the Pacific Ocean, a man finished construction of a small, mysterious building near the edge of his property. If you had walked up to that structure, you might have heard the hum of large motors whirring within the walls. Apparently, this guy was scared. He was afraid. He was believing the hype. He knew the apocalypse was nigh. He knew that the machines were going to fail, that when the calendars turn from 1999 to 2000 that all the rumors of y2k armageddon were correct there'd be no more electricity he thought i'll generate my own apparently this guy was probably generating enough power in that room to power like the entire city of nearby santa barbara or something close well guess what it's been nearly two decades since the calendars flipped to 2000 and the world in fact did not end and that man and his generators are long gone but that does not mean that there's not an amazing machine still between those walls operating. What is it doing? You're listening to a new track from Alan Parsons' new record. The album is called The Secret. And that's about all I can play for you of each track, because you know what? It's not out yet. You're getting a sneak peek exclusive listen on this show to some of these songs. Yes, you're welcome. It's amazing. The album will be out soon, though, so you can snag it. April 26th, Alan Parsons, The Secret. And I got to say, man, I just love me and Alan Parsons record, because you know I love power trio records and rock records and, and all these different kind of formats you might find of a of a combo or a band but an alan parsons record man it's just overflowing with sonic ear candy you get so much sound for your money I mean, he's got orchestras, he's got brass horn sections. He's got cool sound effects, voices. He's got multiple arrangers, multiple singers, multiple composers, multiple guitar players. It's just spectacular. And he mixes it all. And yes, he mixed it on that mysterious machine. What is that machine in those walls? In that former Y2K power bunker? Well, it's a Neve 5088, probably the hippest recording console available on planet Earth. And it was really neat. It's always special to be in proximity to a great Neve board. But this one was really magical because it looks brand new. It looks like it just landed there. So clean, you could probably literally eat off of it. Although, if you have any kind of respect for studio gear, you just shudder at the thought of even a breadcrumb hitting that thing. (laughs) It's just wonderful to be right there where Alan, I mean, that's kind of his perfect environment in front of a badass recording console. And thanks for uh, listening to my 
setup here, which is because with that whole bunker thing, man, the whole vibe, it kind of reminded me of Lost or something. And uh, Alan has always had this kind of cool sci-fi mysterious edge. So so that sort of J.J. Abrams vibe kind of suits him, I think. And of course, you know, he expanded that bunker. The bunker is basically the control room now. Now he has a live room attached to it and an ISO room for loud guitar amps and a kitchen and a lounge and um, bathroom and and some living quarters for people. And it's all part of his property, which is just, it's just beautiful up there, man. What a pleasure to be able to land the helicopter, shall we say, and hang out with him and not just him, but the amazing Jeff Coleman. is just the monster guitar player that you might remember from his solo episode here on No Guitar Is Safe about a year and a half ago, two years ago. I mean, a lot of you wrote in that you were so surprised at how incredibly tasty and versatile he was as a guitar player and how dramatic his interview was because, as you might remember, that was also the first time that he opened up publicly talking about the incredibly brutal and unfair loss of his brother that occurred just a few years ago. That was a very dramatic episode. My name is Jude Gold. Thanks for listening to No Guitar Is Safe. Today, Jeff is going to play a bunch of guitar for you. It's so cool. We're hanging out with Parsons. And Jeff, Jeff's plugged into a little Fender G-Deck amplifier. You remember those? It's kind of a practice amp, but it's got some goodies on it. And, uh, of course, Jeff makes it sound magical, as any great player makes any piece of gear sound. And Jeff is playing one of his Fender Custom Shop Stratocasters with the uh, humbucker and the bridge. Sounds great, but of course it's all in his fingers. I had the pleasure of hanging out with Jeff and Alan Parsons for a few moments on the Moody Blues Cruise. I think it's called the Moody's Cruise. I was playing with Jefferson Starship, and of course they were the Alan Parsons Live Project, and they rocked the boat and uh, got to meet Alan. It was awesome back then. You know, he's not the kind of person who's boisterous and outgoing. Alan, like many great producers, is a listener, which I love. And he's also a little imposing when you first meet him because he's like six foot four or something. Six five? Somebody tell me. But turns out he's the sweetest cat, man. He loves his band members too, takes care of them, buys them all kinds of cool presents all the time. And like if when the first car shows up, he's like, you guys get in. He never gets in the first car, apparently. He waits till the next car comes. Sounds like a great band leader to me. He even, get this, even though he's the super producer, the Grammy-winning platinum multi-million selling solo artist, composer, and the dude who recorded with the Beatles and Abbey Road on on the album Abbey Road too, and Let It Be, and on the rooftop when they did that famous concert on top of Apple Records, and also Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, and other stuff. He recently did an album with Steven Wilson, a newer voice in Prague. But with all that, Jeff says that Alan Parsons still is totally open if you have a suggestion or like maybe try a different compressor or I, I don't know, or try another EQ. Like he'll actually listen to your input on, on a mix or something, which is just so cool. That's always a sign of a great musician and great producer. Some people who are just always listening. And uh, if this episode is at all late, well, you know, it's been a really busy early part of 2019 for me. Thank you for your patience. I was doing like 12 days in Florida, including three days on the Flower Power Cruise, playing with Jefferson Starship. Very fun. Great bands on this boat. Chuck Negron had a monster band. He's, you know, he's a famous 
singer from Three Dog Night. He had Ricky Z on guitar, man. Ricky just putting on a show. Love watching him play. Ricky Zaharidis. I'm not quite sure. People call him Ricky Z. Great player. Tom Finch just crushing it with Big Brother and the Holding Company. It was a lot of fun. And then we had a day off and we stayed in St. Martin at Airplane Beach. Have you ever been to this beach or seen it on YouTube? It's nuts. The airplanes come in right over this perfect white sand beach with the most perfect warm water. And like the landing gear just basically skims your hair. It's nuts because the runway is really short, so they come in really low. It's a, it was a, it was a thrill. And it was a great tour, but I'm back and I got all kinds of podcasts for you. And I'm playing in Shreveport, Louisiana this weekend, Saturday night. And lots of California stuff. It's all, it's all, you know, hit me up at Instagram, Twitter, Jude underscore gold. And please, of course, five-star review helps the podcast grow. Nothing helps it more than if you tell a friend about it. I get so many emails from you like, I just discovered your show and I've binged listened to all of them. Thank you guys so much. Oh yeah, before I forget too, I also want to give a shout out to Dan Tracy, who's the other guitar player in the Alan Parsons band, and he's all over this record too. And I met him on that Moody's boat too. Well, we're going to talk about you, Dan, in your absence. (laughs) So let's fire up the copter and meet up with Jeff Coleman and the great super producer Alan Parsons and hear what they've been up to up at Alan's studio. It's fun. I get to set up my Zoom recorder and mics in front of Alan Parsons. That's kind of like that's kind of like showing your new computer program to Steve Jobs or hey, check out this kung fu move, Bruce Lee. But yeah, it was neat. It was very fun and uh, super accommodating. We had a great lunch up there too. And lunch was on Jeff, man. Thank you, Jeff. See what I'm talking about? It's just a big love fest up there. And speaking of Jeff Coleman, he starts off our episode today playing a Well, he loops some chords from one of the songs in the new record, plays some lead over the top, sets a really cool vibe to start things off. Hope you enjoy this episode. Keep it alive to your 95, y'all. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.
fade it out. We're gonna fade it out. Beautiful. You gotta leave. The that page. was that, that was like a demo for for, str- <laughs> for for Fender. I mean, like you got every strat, every classic strat sound in in f- forty five seconds there. It's true, yeah. and all Fender gear. Yeah. I love when I went to the dirty sound. It got quieter. I just told Alan Parsons about two different audio sources here of microphones, and, <laughs> and I set microphones up in front of you, sir. That's like doing a skateboard trick. In I like front the of... Technicolor pop screens. <laughs> oh yeah, you're you're talking about these clown nose pop screens. Yeah. Hey, you know they're less cumbersome than the ones that you set up in front of the Beatles on the roof that you improvised. They were uh, they were just pantyhose. <laughs> I, you know, I've heard that story. You, you ran down to the shop. You grabbed the pantyhose. What did you actually put them on to to make them sit <laughs> situate in front of the microphones? Just uh, well, the, the the funny thing was, I said I'd like a pair of pantyhose, please, and they they said what size, sir? And I said it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, oh. So they thought I was going to put it over my head and rob a bank. I think. There you go. Did you put them on hangers or something in front of the? Uh... No, they were they were just literally yeah. wrapped right 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 around the mics. Oh, right. I would, okay, so I would yeah I just learned something I do I wouldn't think that would really <laughs> succeed in blocking the pops. Um, I think the uh, the main thing was to get rid of a little bit of wind noise, which was, it was very very cold windy morning. So oh, we needed yeah. to. Uh, shall I have the dog uh, part company from us? Well, we will probably hear some of that <laughs> panting. And oh, I definitely various, heard that. <laughs> Excuse me, Ellen. Cover your mouth when you All right, just sneeze. All right, it's good. Come on. Scooby, go, go outside. Oh. Come on, baby. You're a good doggy. What's the dog's name? Scooby. Scooby. Sounds familiar. Obviously named by a child, not by a grown-up. <laughs> My uh, daughter just just got a pair of, oh, thank you, just got a pair of bulldogs, and they're called Axel and Rose. Ah, that's good. So after, gosh, 15 years, why suddenly now are you doing a record? Is it because you have a brand new studio and you wanted to fire it up? That's one of the reasons. And uh, the other reason was a a check that went into the bank. (laughs) So, Uh, I mean, Frontiers, the label, have been basically chasing after me for for 10 years now to make an album. Oh, great. And uh, we eventually... We eventually uh, settled on a on a deal that I could work with, and uh, here we are. You got to spend Fantastic. the money on something other than blackjack. Well, well it it was the studio, really. <laughs> <laughs> the, Do you the guys? Studio, the... the studio still has a way to go to to get paid for. So it is spectacular. I, I can't believe you haven't had a studio like this for the last several years. Well, yeah, the the last album I it was in the the house previous to this, and it was literally just a bedroom, like. Uh, like so many records these days, just a just a computer and a bunch of plugins. Now this studio is rather far from your house. I mean, you know, it it's a, be, it's got to be it's got to be what three hundred feet, maybe four hundred feet. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking to Slash once. He said it was very important for him not to have a studio in his house because, mm-hmm. like, he needed to get out of the house and go to work. You know what I mean? He had yeah. to go to work. Is that how you feel about your studio? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's a good distance. I mean. Uh, it's a it's a little golf golf cart ride. I I, I drive a yeah. golf cart between the, the house and the studio. How's the commute? Is the L.A. traffic bad up here or not really? No, not no traffic to speak of up here. <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice thing. Other golf carts. 
Now, you've, you've always been kind of an enigma to me. I've been listening to you since I was 10 years old. And then I finally got to be on the boat with you guys, and, and that was kind of cool. Did a concert. How much of you being kind of a mysterious figure in terms of who is Alan Parsons, other than the man behind these hits, how much of that is intentional, and how much of that is just a, a result of you being a producer who does so many eclectic different things? Well, if you may, you may have noticed on the cruise, I'm definitely not anonymous. <laughs> People were coming up to me all the time. Oh, love your music, man. You know, all this stuff. And, uh, True. There's constant, uh, constant attention, which is, which is nice, but... Not all day long, you know, it, it gets, wears a bit thin, but no, I was, I was happy to talk to people, you know, genuine hardcore fans. It's great. But over the course of your career, it seems like you're kind of half, you know, celebrity, but also half man behind the curtain. Yeah. I'm pretty, I'm pretty comfortable being the, the, the guy on the other side of the glass. I mean, that's, that's, that's what I grew up doing. So yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that. But on stage, you know, you've got, you've got to, You've got to be an actor when you're on stage. You've got a you've got a different job to do when you're on stage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was acting. What you playing over there, Jeff? The I little, was uh, theme music. You know, I was just thinking about <laughs> what what music could go behind certain conversations. <laughs> and you came up with absolutely nothing. And right? I absolutely nothing. <laughs> hey. Yeah, nothing. I think I think that's we something. Do, we can do whatever you want. <laughs> ah, yes. Now. You have worked with so many fantastic guitar players over the years. I mean, let's see here. We got. David well, there's Gilmore. always exceptions. I mean, Jeff Coleman is uh, obviously an, an exception. Yeah, I was referring to the past. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> well, I was just about. You could just see, even though, obviously, you're joking. But we we guitar players we bruise easily. We bruise easily. What have you learned? Like, I mean. We're, let's just list off some of these players going back to the Beatles and then including Paul McCartney, who's also a great guitar player, but he's he's a everything, and and Steve Hackett and Ian Berenson and, and David Gilmore. What have you, I mean, as a psychologist or a music producer or both, what, what have you learned about guitar players after working with them for all these decades? Uh, I mean, it, it's incredible to watch them. I mean, uh, I, I'm usually in complete awe of what, what these great players do. And occasionally wish that I could get close to doing it myself, but uh, my guitar playing has remained about what I would call grade two out of out of eight since uh, since I can remember. I, I, I'm I'm just a strummer. I did have a brief period of uh, of playing lead guitar in a blues band. That uh, that band was called the Earth Band, and uh, re- it got released a year ago by Record cool. Collector magazine in the UK. It's okay, but it's not great. <laughs> it's but uh, no, I'm I'm a I'm a an adequate rhythm guitar player for the band, but uh, I would never dream of taking a solo. But what, how do guitar players different, or do they, from other musicians? As you know, as a producer, having working with them and coaching them over the years, is there any? Are they, do they have? Oh, I would I like, would never say that I'd coached guitar player. <laughs> they coach me, I think. Well, I mean, but Ian Ian Benson was was a joy to work with. He uh, he did all the project albums, from start to finish. And he's a wonderful player. And uh, he's done a little guest appearance on two of the solos on the latest album, which is great. Since you mention it, like Beyond the Years of Glory, I believe that's him. He plays a beautiful solo over that sort of one to four progression.
up a second. I assume that he played on games people play. Sure he did, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Like when I was a kid, I was like, that's an incredible guitar solo. Now I listen to it. I'm like, that's an incredible guitar solo with incredible tone, strat tone. And then I listen to it. I'm like, what an incredible melody. The whole mm-hmm. thing is like you could sing that solo. You want to play it, play a little bit of it for oh, us, there, Jeffrey? <laughs> I know you know it. You're... And it comes right after that two-four bar, right? Well, I said yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a few uh, there's a few two-four bars to yeah, to fool you in games people play. Right. Right. Yeah. Now, yeah. normally live, Todd, our saxophone player, would take the next melody. So let's recall what it is. Uh, huh? uh, let's see. Something like that. I'm guessing now, but, but it, it's, it, it's usually the it's usually the last song in the uh, in the set. So you. Yeah, you know, you don't want to exclude Todd from having, his, <laughs> right. having a solo yeah. on the last song. I was like, how does the second half go? That's pretty. Good. But yeah, That's, Ian yeah. Berenson. I mean, it's just uh, you can sing everything he played, and it's so melodic and so uh, such a joy to listen to. And if we're talking mic. about underrated guitar players, I mean, you know, it's amazing how people talk about. You know, Slash is underrated. I'm like, no, he's highly rated. No, Ace Frehley's underrated. No, he's highly rated. A guy like Ian Berenson truly is underrated because he's orchestrated such great solos and, you know, maybe he's not the household name guitar player like Gary Moore. I don't think he worked hard to to get to get gigs outside the project in Cape Bush. Really, when I mean, he he, if he'd made it known that he was available to do sessions, I think more people would have gone after him. But I don't know. I think he just uh, stayed out of the limelight, as it were. Does he have like less outgoing personality? I mean, oh, he's far from extrovert. Yeah, he's 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 very uh, a very introverted character. I think more so now as he's grown older. Maybe we could recruit Jeff to also play like the famous line on "Wouldn't Want to Be Like You." I assume that's Ian as well. Again, it's such a singable line. Yeah. Let's see how does this one go. It's interesting when you don't have your band with you. <laughs> you gotta get into it a little bit. Uh, the interesting thing about the soul is it really swings. Like you can't, you know, you really gotta swing it. Right? a little faster but I'm getting a little attitude and that's really you know really uh, has a certain presence and attitude and yeah I remember talking to my buddy Dan and he, and he said yeah I said we're playing this tune live and 
Alan talked me into singing it, and he goes, oh, man, the solo. And he just started, he hadn't heard the song in 15 years, and he just started mouthing the solo. You know, he's not even a guitar mm-hmm. player. Over the phone, I'm like, how musical is that? Exactly, which uh, leads me to my next question. Do you compose any of these solos for your guitar players, like as a melody, and oh, have them take n- over? I might offer a little bit of guidance, but uh, but no, I wouldn't hum a tune or anything. No, I'd leave that to them. Nothing or I would wrong. say the, the bit that goes, duh, 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 was great, but didn't like the bit that no. goes, dee, 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 you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, what was that? <laughs> See? Another, do, no, another great solo in the making. <laughs> did Ian, like a solo like games people play, did he spontaneously throw that down or did he work it out? Kind of a. Uh, I mean, it, it was always improvised to a degree. And then sometimes we would say, that's a great one. Let's try one more. And then we might comp between two or three different solos. But uh, generally, when we knew we were on the right path, he said, you know what, I'll, I'll duplicate what I just did, and then I'll take it to the end. You know, yeah. Usually that was the way it worked. No, no real rules, but uh, it was always just a case of developing each solo you know, and uh, making it so that we were both happy. How do you help develop a solo? I mean, I've been in this situation many times where I'm with a great producer, and they bring a part out of me, not only that's way better than I would have put it out, put down myself, but much faster and much less takes. <laughs> you know, instead of doing 92 takes of something I don't really love, how do you approach bringing out a good part or a good recorded performance from a well, musician? I think, that's, I think that's what you've just said is what being a good producer is, you know, just uh, being able to communicate with the player in such a way that uh, he gets the job done, he gets it better, done better than he might otherwise have done it. And uh, and the, the communication between the two of you is there. You know, it's, it's important. How much of it is like musical, like, and how much of it is like psychological, like? <laughs> oh know? yeah, we make make angry faces at each <laughs> other if it does, if it's not working. Yeah, no, it's, 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 I, I think it's always important to to be positive and say this is going to be great just do it a little more this or a little more that or when you go to the high notes come down sooner you know all that kind of stuff but uh, but i'm unlikely to actually hum a tune i think the important thing is to be thematic you know if i come in solo with alan he's going to want some kind of something he can latch on to not just licks you know showing off it's some sort of memorable phrase melody so i try to start there and you'll see a little less of that or stick with that or you know I always heard that Steve Perry would feed Neil Sean his the melodic phrases because Neil's right away is going for the, you know, the frantic <laughs> yeah. riffs. So he's the one going, you know, whatever it is, you know, ba di da di da di da. It's like all those melodic sing songy things came from Steve. That's the inside story. And then Neil would do his shredding. And sometimes Neil would do the the vocal melody, basically, right. like "Don't Stop Believing." Well, or I think that's probably in the on the other side of the glass going, "Hey, you know what?" Enough of the, the shredding. How about, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. I'm not going to play a journey melody right now, but, you know, just these melodic phrases. Right. So, mm-hmm. Speaking of which, like thematic kind of stuff, I love your solo on Soiree Fantastique, which uh, has a beautiful sound. Mm-hmm. Well, what's interesting about that one is we did the very speed thing on there well, where the we detuned the guitar yeah. and we double tracked yeah. it. So. That's a that's a trick of mine that I've been doing for years. First first learnt, learnt it from Roy Wood, of uh, originally of ELO and uh, yeah. later the Move. He used to double track things with the tape running 
slightly faster or slightly slower. What does that achieve? It achieves this wonderful chorus chorusing effect that you don't get doing it any other way. I mean, the, the, you get the same result by detuning. If it's a guitar, you detune it slightly flat or slightly sharp. It's a very, uh, very similar effect. Sometimes I've done, you know, three or four different pitches to get yeah. to a really strong uh, tracked effect on a guitar. I was talking to Tom Scholes. He do, he'll do three, four, five, or six different, like on those big guitar stuff on the original Boston record for the oh, power right. chords. Yeah. How did you do it on this solo, Jeff? I remember playing a, a melodic solo and probably didn't get it in the first take, but it was pretty quick, I think. And, uh, and then Alan said, can you learn what you just played? Because there was some, I don't remember specifically, but some kind of, and then, you know, some, so, so there's some movement in there where you're just like, okay, well, let's see what we did. And then probably listen two or three times over, learn what I just played. And then he'd have me detune, what, Ascent maybe? And then just try to, you know, double track it perfect. Just one cent would be a Yeah, it's, it'd be more the same. It'd be a, a hertz. It would be going from 440 to 441, say. Uh, okay, that, that's so. enough to make it. Uh, I forgot so, how many. Yeah, there is a formula, but a hundred cents is a full full semitone, isn't it? So. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, one cent wouldn't be very much. What's ten cents between brothers? <laughs> <laughs> it's too much math for me. I just basically yeah. I have a simple tuner and I just go down one click. Yeah. I'm not gonna act like I dividing you know atoms. Yeah. Now let's check out the first song on the whole thing, your version of Sorcerer's Apprentice. Obviously there's a magic theme to this record. You, you're a member of the Magic Castle, I believe, and, I am. and, you, and you've, you're known to do a few tricks of your own. Well, not again, yeah. I mean, I, I've never had a paid gig as a magician, but uh, I, I enjoy magic enormously uh, and cool. have a lot of friends who are magicians. And, there's an interesting uh, quote on one of the songs too, about either the voice comes in, like something about when technology is new and- um, It's any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, and that uh, that came from Arthur C. Clarke. Fantastic! Yeah, I'm a fan of that kind of stuff too. To me, like that could almost—maybe I'm reading too much into it—but that could almost be the theme of the record. How do, how does music and magic work together for you, or overlap? Or well, I've had incredible luck with uh, previous songs that had the word magic. <laughs> <laughs> right. I did a record with a band called Pilot. Called, yeah. called Magic. Oh, that, was, oh, that was Ian Barrington on guitar, right? Yeah, that, was, that was him. We had a hit with uh, Don't Answer Me, which the first line of the song is if you believe in the power of magic. So there you are. Yeah, well, I was, I was thinking it might be deeper than just, hey, <laughs> the word. <laughs> I mean, you're a magician and a musician. Is there any parallels? I mean, they're, they're both branches of entertainment, aren't they? I, I think if yeah. I hadn't been a musician, I might have become a ma magician. There again, I, I said if I didn't go into sound recording, I'd have gone into video 
you know, I'd gone into uh, right. my my other aspirations were towards being a, a, a movie cameraman at one time. Interesting. But, uh, so it was always entertainment, always some some branch of entertainment that was that was interesting me. Sorcerer's Apprentice features both you, Jeff, and Steve Hackett on guitar. Tell tell me about that session. It was a uh, pretty demanding on a, on a reading yeah, right? level, wasn't it? Yeah, I think there was at least seven pages. It took three music stands. I remember Vinny Kaliuta <laughs> said, "You know," he said, "This there's three music stands holding up my music, <laughs> so maybe if we could." And I remember he said, "Can we maybe do this in three chunks? Because there's the rubato intro, right? And it takes a minute, and then we kick into the meat of the song, which is." Um, you know the the main portion of it. Then the outro is just kind of rubato and you know ethereal kind of vibe. So I was excited when I heard Vinny say, "Can we maybe punch in something?" I thought, <laughs> "Yes," <laughs> because you know Vinny's got the room really cold. I remember asking Julian, "Is there any chance that we can maybe bump the heat up? <laughs> it's like 50 degrees." Yep. And you know, there's what a paid audience. I've never tracked with Vinny or Nathan East, so and pretty heavy reading and so it was an exciting challenge and of course uh, Steve reads oh really so it was all it was all charted out everything everything was written down no. did, both both Jeff and Steve did some lovely sort of unwritten effects on, on, on the tune Jeff you so. were actually there at the session where how many strings were there was it a um, it was well we did the track in the morning and then the uh, the full orchestra in the afternoon it wasn't just strings it was uh, right full orchestra full, I think it was 70 piece were you tracking with the orchestra or just with Vinny, Nathan, and Tom Brooks. Oh, yeah. With Alan Engineering. No pressure there. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, as someone who I know, you don't regularly have reading gigs, but yet I work with a guy you work with, John O'Brown, doing sessions, and he always raves about your reading. Is it intimidating as a guitar player? Even though I know you have good reading chops, I know you found out about this song like two or three days beforehand. Yeah, I was, in, I was pretty intimidated. Did we, did we send you a shot? That, you know, well, here's how it went down. I found out with Julian um, that th it was sent over to Tim Pierce first, and he s said it was out of his wheelhouse. Oh, really? Then they, Tom called his buddy Michael Landau, who's my favorite guitar player, and Mike wasn't available, and he said, why don't you get Jeff Coleman? He's already in the band. Because from my understanding, you guys were going to do this with session guys. That particular song was going to be outside session guys, not any band guys. Well, it was going to be part of the recording masterclass, I guess. Right. Yeah. So when, so Tom sent it over to me. He said, you know, Alan, I talked to him. He said, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind if Jeff played on it. So I looked up the music, and I got a score of it, you know, the violins and everything, and I uh, just, you know, researching, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm doomed. <laughs> <laughs> and I called Tom back, and I said, you know what? How, who can do this? I said, Maybe give Christopher Parkening a Les Paul and hope for the best, because I don't know who can do this. He said, you know what? You stood up toe-to-toe -to -toe to Steve, with Steve I last week. He goes, you'll be fine. I go, well, I've never tracked with Vinny. I don't know if I'm the guy for this. He said, I said, if you can give me the music a couple days in advance, because there's a lot of you know, violin phrases that are really fast, and, you know, and no one were tracking it live in the studio, and we didn't do any overdubs. I remember we, there was one phrase where I cut out early on a on a line where it was doing some kind of, you know, uh... So halfway through, I just played like the first three notes. And stopped oh, yeah. because I'm getting ready for the violin. You know, mm -hmm. so I just went like... Two, three, four... 
two, three, four. This kind of thing. So then they had me overdub where I play the phrase completely. So it would have been like, uh, let's see. Some kind of thing like that. Mm -hmm. I can't remember specifically, but. You're remembering a lot. Well, I think that was actually tuned down. So let's see. And then this kind of thing. <laughs> so you got to work out the, you know, the fingering. It's not like you're going to read as quick as you can finger it. Right. So, the, so that was your weekend, learning that stuff. <laughs> yeah. And then there's lines, like, you know, where you're going down minor thirds. Yeah. And that's tricky because if you're, not to sidetrack our thing here. No, it's interesting. <laughs> but if you're walking down minor thirds with this kind of, now you got to go to the second string. You can't use the same second and first finger. So I realized that. It's either got to yeah. be two and one or three and one, depending on which string you're on. Oops, sorry. Right? Yeah. And then second finger, third finger, open. I love it, man. So, you know, it's... <laughs> and then you and or Hackett are just like harmonizing that sort of for the diminished harmonies. I hear like multiple thirds going on yeah there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on i mean obviously each of those um yeah. in, introduction parts were were recorded separately i mean it, right, right they were they were actually duplicating the original string lines from the original piece and uh that's when you actually see the sorcerer the the, the, yeah. the two sections where you see the sorcerer the the rest of the piece is just mickey mouse in, in fantasia of course and the brooms and buckets right <laughs> I mean, uh, the the sorcerer is sort of magically casting spells, and it's 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 a very it's a very magical piece. I actually grew up with it. I was uh, uh, it was the first classical EP I ever called my own, and it was a performance by uh, George Salty, uh, and it was on Decca. And uh, strangely enough, I was um, last year in the summer. I was in touch with Brian May um, on the way to see the Total Eclipse in Nashville. We, we we were on the same flight, and uh, I talked to him again uh, in, at a later time, and he he too had grown up with the, the same recording as a child. Amazing! Didn't you uh, ask him to play on it? But I I suggested uh, that he might be perfect for it, but he he bowed to a to that to saying that Steve Hackett would do a better job. Well, everyone's like looking at the sheet music, going, "Oh, you need so and so." Now, I love your outside influences that you bring. Your music crosses over into radio rock, but then you have these moments. Like when I hear Eclipse or Total Eclipse, you know, it reminds me of those voices on one of my favorite soundtracks. And you mentioned Arthur C. Clarke, 2001 The Space Odyssey. Was there yeah. any kind of influence from oh, that? Oh, totally, totally. I mean, I said I, um, it, it was written by Andrew Powell. I, I didn't have any hand in the, uh, in the actual scoring or writing of that. I said, go and write another Ligeti piece. And oh. that, that was the guy that, uh, that featured yeah. in 2001. That's so incredible. off he went and came up with a brilliant choral and orchestral score for, could, could have been written by Ligeti, literally. I know. 
Who are some of your other huge influences outside of the rock pop realm as far as producer or composer that have really profoundly... <laughs> I, I grew up um, in a household that, that, generally speaking, had classical music going pretty much day and night. My mother was a, a harpist, my dad was a flautist, uh, and, and pretty pretty useful piano player too. I loved, uh, I loved the Beethoven symphonies, every one of them. I loved uh, Mozart, the Mozart horn concertos I was always very keen on, which is possibly why uh, I featured French horns very heavily in uh, a lot of my music. Awesome. Bye. There it is. Oh, it's, let's hear it. No. Get your, get it. Now she got it. My seat's too high. I hate this. <laughs> what is the? What is the? Uh... Yeah. See how useless I am without the music. <laughs> yeah. There it is. You could do it that way too. <laughs> I think that's how we did it on the recording. <laughs> it's almost metal, isn't it? I suppose it is, yeah. <laughs> is there a way for you to do uh, very speed now with uh, Pro Tools and stuff? Or do you, do you have to literally go back to the old school? Um, I, the, the only way that I've uh, discovered to do it with, um, with a workstation is, is to uh, plug in uh, a Tascam tape machine. Which had very speed on it. Yeah, and you drive the digital clock with with a variable clock. Right. There's also um, an Apogee unit called a Big Ben, which is able to to give you a slight uh, variation on the sampling. It's, a, it's effectively just changing the sampling frequency. That's what you're doing. So that Apogee box, had, instead of having to retune our guitars, we could use that box. Yeah, yeah Go straight in. Yeah. But it's kind of fun to make Jeff do it, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's a learning experience for me. It's really good on bass too. If you do it on bass, oh, I think really? I think we did it on bass on Miracle. Possibly. Yeah, I think we did. And uh, keyboards, you know, I mean, if you want a honky tonk piano, uh, instant with that with that technique. Oh, so you record two piano parts slightly out of tune yeah, with each other. That's right. Yeah, ah, yeah, it's true. That would be perfect. But of course, it doesn't work on vocals. So you can take your Steinway and make it sound like Rocky you, Raccoon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's pretty dope. Of course, it doesn't work on vocals because. Uh, it's a natural tendency just to, to pitch to whatever you hear. Yeah. So it makes no difference. Although some singers have their own natural various speed, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Sing naturally flat, yes. Why is it always flat? It's ne almost never sharp. Singers singers are always flat, not sharp. So you just mentioned Miracle. That has a great singer on it. I love how you go from Ligeti to, like, mainstream pop, too. <laughs> right. Um, why did you want to work with Jason Mraz other than that he is your neighbor, sort of? He lives around here, yes. He's, uh, I think, in Ojai, California. Um, we first met a couple of years ago. Um, my, uh, one of my agricultural neighbors just down the, just down the road, just half a mile away, um, grows coffee as well as uh, fruit, avocados, and exotic exotic fruits um, like uh, cherimoyas and so on. But he's, he's been experimenting with coffee and Jason got to hear about it. And uh, this neighbor, Jay Rusky is his name, he introduced me to Jason because he thought, you know, two musicians, both farmers, yeah. we should probably meet, you know. So uh, 
we we met and got on very well and uh he came up here and we uh, hung out for a bit had a few drinks and talked music it was great it took a full two years for me to talk to uh, talk to him again on the, on the phone and i sent him this this song that we'd done as a, as a track i said hey would you like to would you like to contribute to the to my record and he said oh my god he says this song sounds like it's a remnant from eye in the sky he actually awesome. said that he actually said that he said it could have been on that album and uh, he loved it and agreed to sing it over the internet while he was on tour in dallas i was i was here in santa barbara he was in dallas and uh that that's that's the way we did quite a bit of the of this album just over the internet at a distance now when you say that though a lot of people just say here's a song record something send it back but i think a lot of the time you're actually skyping or have some way to be involved in the session even though there's many miles between you that's right um, I mean, the, the audio technology is there now to, to, to do it in real time. It's, there's actually a su substantial delay between the time that the, the performance actually happens and we hear it back here, but it's as good as real time. Oh, so you're hearing literally not just over Skype or something like that. Oh, no, it's, 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 it's quality audio. You're hearing it. You're quality hearing audio. It. What, do you, what service do you use? It's called Source Connect, and uh, I've been in touch with those guys for, for some years now, and, and uh, they've always been very helpful. Show me a miracle I want to believe Show me a miracle Show me the real me Give me a miracle That is helpful. And you got the video too, right? So The video, um, the video we normally just use FaceTime. <laughs> Just you know, two mobile phones up. pointing at uh, pointing at each other. Cause yeah, because it, uh, it, it eats into the uh, internet. Uh, you know, the, you want to get as much bandwidth out of the out of the internet, internet as you can right, right. to do the audio. So, you know, when they finally come up with Source Connect, where it's there's no latency and we can literally play with a drummer who's three it will, states away, it will, we, it will never happen. But well, then we never have to see each other again. It'll, you know, how wonderful <laughs> will that be? No, the reason it will never happen is you can't change the laws of physics. Um, audio can never go faster than the speed of light, and for the speed of light to reach Australia, for example, it's like half a second or something. So we'll never be able to do that. Well, how long to reach Van Nuys? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe Van Nuys. <laughs> maybe you could get to Van Nuys, yeah. Right on. But, it's, you know, internet has a habit of bouncing off satellites and stuff, so it tends, right. tends to be uh, pretty pretty latent, shall we say. Right, right. That's a good point. So um, you play a really nice solo on Miracle. Jeff, what were you plugged into for that? Um, I used a F-bomb three fuzz face pedal um, made by a buddy of mine. We kind of developed it together, a variation of it. And um, I was using a wah pedal, either cocked, you know, like three quarters, so it has a certain yeah. kind of honk to it. And um, fuzz face, that was a that was one of the first ever fuzz boxes, wasn't well, it? Well, yeah, they had the old Dallas Arbitrator fuzz faces. This guy's got a, a different take on it, where mm -hmm. it's not as sixty sounding. All right. You know, uh, just a little different, hmm. but it's uh, apocalyptic, you know, and it cleans up nice, and yeah, it's a cool, cool sound. Why do I think you had a role in naming it the F-bomb? You know what? I can't take credit for that. <laughs> I'd love to say I could. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, now, 
set up the groove, if you would, for a miracle. Well, but I there's think a couple what we had. Going on. Let's see. Dang it, dang I actually dang. have a, a cool. Uh, now hold on, everybody. Don't panic. <laughs> I have a cool. So you can, with your G Deck three amp that's not available anymore, you could uh, create a loop, right? I don't know if it's two bars. Uh, and then you play back, so... So it was more bars, but that's okay. Stop. <laughs> so yeah, there's a phrase in there. It's just uh, A minor. A, still A. Then it goes to F. Phrase stays the same. And then to D, to E. So yeah, great little uh, tool just for writing and recording. You just, right? Yeah. If you don't have your bass player there. Three, two, three, four, four, two, if you're counting. I don't know if it switches there, but. Tempo. I have a phrase that goes I, I like was, this. I, uh, I swore you were going to go into Genesis, turn it on again at the beginning of that. <laughs> when you first started doing that. So I'm doing ethereal kind of things like that. like a Very nice. And then there's also the... so on you can practice soloing or whatever you want and did, what kind of can you give us a little solo action or or lead on top uh, of that <laughs> sure is it over the same progression yeah let's see if i know this pedal good enough All right That's why I always say you're playing way so too the, much. This, this this amp has a built-in sampler, or yeah. built-in recorder, right? That's great. And you said, and they don't make it anymore. No. Shame. stop it at any time or keep adding layers i kind of need the inspiration of the backing track to i mean just playing yeah. in the air is like i know you know but you can overdub so i could just start right away with the overdub now it's recording me oops it recorded me lagging too <laughs> now it's recording me laying back now if i just press play two three four
then there's a point where you go, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what I like about it, like, for instance, if we were talking about a song, not to move forward, but like Fly to Me, for instance. Yeah. There's a progression, right? Uh, let's see. Let me try to get this right once. Switch sounds. That, that second chord is magic. I love that second chord. I agree. So to stop it, yeah. Chord. So what I'm doing there, musically speaking, I think I screwed up that. Here we go. I'm not so good with the pedal, you know. It's not like a tour with the pedal. I, I actually like to play along with other musicians. Here's an idea. <laughs> Which you're pretty good at. That chord, you know, musically speaking, you know, you could play... You know, if there's eight crayons in the crayon box, that's what your songs sound like, you know. Yeah. That's fine, but... Now you sound like me playing. <laughs> <laughs> but I always like to find a little more color in the chords. So, like, major seven, right? Right. Minor six nine. I love that. Tuning's optional. <laughs> I think the, uh, like instead of just hitting an A7 to D, yeah. for me is a little bit like the obvious thing. Right. So what, how, what can we do with an A7? And then you find voicings. There's a nice with the sus4. You got the nine in there, right? Majors. Yeah. Maybe it's this yeah. voicing. Uh, the pre-course goes to, instead of just playing G to C, a to D, tuning. Uh, I play like a minor six, right? Mm. It's still upset from the Sorcerer's Apprentice. <laughs> I know, because you dropped Now, it like down the to B C. flat, right? Add a six in there. It's nice. If ever we do sheet music, it'd be great to get those chords you know, notated. It'd be beautiful. What can you say about magic that's not been said before? What were you presented with when Mark Michael gave you that song? Did he give you just basic one major, one minor, like you're talking about? Because you've obviously added so much to no, it. No, so I wrote the, the music oh, okay. and then sent it to him. What happened was Alan, you know, was looking for 
songs to you know to uh, build off of. So I called my friend Mark because every time I've sent him a musical idea, he sends back Bohemian Rhapsody. He's that guy. <laughs> you send him at three chords, and he comes back with uh, counterpoint vocals and interesting you know uh, lyrics like John Lennon. I love that first lyric that he came up with. How does the song open? Uh, what, can you say? what can you say about magic that hasn't been said before? A lot what of people you? have said he has uh, a Lennon-esque yeah. quality to his voice. It's the second line that I was... What, if, that hasn't, what, what can, can you do with a crystal ball but roll it across the floor? Yes, and what could you that. say about magic that's not superfluous? That's another one. <laughs> that's Super- a great line. Yeah. don't think there's ever been a... A rock song with the word superfluous in it before. And an incantation. Incantation, too. He's yeah. genius. But, you know, this happened overnight. <coughs> so I sent him, you know, right? And the, my chorus was the bridge. And I had the, you know, these melodies. And then he sent it back. He changed some things around i'm like wow this is a great song but it's not the song i wrote he goes no no i just i took your what was your chorus and moved that to the bridge the that was my chorus you know i had a different vocal melody over the top but to me that was the chorus originally he didn't see it that way he played it different and he just took my chords and went. So he changed the second chord. In the chorus, it plays an F major seven. That's pretty. And then to the minor six nine. Then he went back to my bridge, which was, which is very Beatley. What's funny is that the other band members go, wow, that's so Beatles. And I went, actually, I wrote that part. It's just we both took from each other. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) You've been wanting that for a while. It's a pretty bold statement to open the record with that. Yeah, I'm not sure everybody agreed with that. And I was kind of... Yeah, I think that's the one. That's the way to open. Well, well we opened the show. The, the, the recent shows we opened with uh, One Note Symphony, and that went down really well, didn't yeah. it? Yeah, really well. I love that song. First of all, just get this out of the way. Were you ever a One Note Samba fan? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Everybody is. All guitar players want, want to be able yeah. to play that, and I can't. Yeah, <laughs> Tony well, yeah. Carlos Jobim, right? <laughs> but technically, his melody does jump up a fourth. Mm-hmm. So, like, your melody really... Really is, is one, one note. <laughs> I mean, with, aside from the harmonies that surround it. Yeah, we, we, we referred to it during recording as one note samba, of course, <laughs> as we would. <laughs> yeah. Were there other inspirations for uh, One Note Symphony? Well, the, the, the main inspiration is, is this um, so-called frequency that dominates the universe. And you, you'll hear Todd singing that. It's 7.83 hertz. And there's some kind of resonance in the, in the universe. I think it's called the Schumann frequency. 
Right. I intend to look it up one day, but don't know a lot about it. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing, right? Yeah. I'm not sure who wrote which song. Did you write the music for that, or I, you know, I, I give most of the credit to to, to Todd. Um, I mean, obviously the uh, the production, the compilation was uh, was all uh, a team effort. But uh, that's the nice thing about working with these guys. You know, they they give me the, they give me credit for the writing, but really it's it's all in the production more than anything else beautiful production on that song um has a really compelling intro too do you remember it i know we're throwing you on this putting you on the spot do you remember the intro to that well i'll tell you right off the bat i had the octavia on and i'm doing a swell this kind of thing where it's just like sounds like it's out of control a little bit yeah and um when it kicks and then in that, that clicking sound is the is the 7.83 hertz being reproduced so, so wow. it, it comes across as a as a sort of clickety click click sound. Yeah, and then I went to a chordal thing like a you know yeah. kind of you know like a yeah. I always think of Andy Summers or Eric Johnson, you know, where you got the big rep- repetitive, really clean and ethereal. And then uh So something cool. like this again, it would be good if you had the loop, right? Because it goes to G. Yeah. I hope I'm doing it right. <laughs> I never know. Ah, <laughs> oh, it goes to G there. Sorry. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm a simple creature. Yeah. So it goes B to G. To E to G. So, right with the drone. And then the verse starts on the uh, A chord. Yeah, it's a, so hypnotic. What a great way to open the show and to open the show with a brand new song that's not even released yet. That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, and it's at a tempo, right? It just kind of sits there. Yeah, crushes. And I'm fascinated with your fascination with sci-fi or whatever. What possessed you to bring the band, I know this had Jeff Marshall on guitar, to Burning Man? Um, I think it was just an opportunity that we couldn't, uh, we couldn't miss. The, the, the theme of Burning Man for that year was iRobot. Enough said. I mean, how could, how could I not but nonetheless, take, take the chance? Surely, being an intelligent man, you realize the logistical challenges. Plus, there's no commerce allowed in there, so that's right. There's no payment or right. tickets to be sold. So I, t- I took a hit. I, I lost a fortune, but it, I, I needed to do it purely because of the it was iRobot or just good. Yeah, and just I mean, I think everybody should do Burning Man once. I'm not sure I'd, I'd do it again, but uh, but it was, were, it was a great experience. You were fascinated just with the art and the yeah i mean it, it, it is quite quite an occasion i mean it's uh you haven't been i feel like i have because i know so many people <laughs> who have but i never actually have it feels like from the photos i've seen like something out of mad max or like yeah, just absolutely. some yeah. like another like you don't it doesn't feel like you're in modern day earth you know yeah a little less violent than mad max but yeah I yeah, think. yeah it's it, all it, it is like another world really is yeah that's cool you took your band mm-hmm. to another world <laughs> What's uh, Dan Tracy's role in, in everything? I obviously, I think Jeff is kind of the, the wild yeah, card I mean, lead we, guitar we, player. We've, we've found having two two electric guitars that can play harmony parts together, that's been a big advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But now that I see this recording box, oh <laughs> if we could just get this thing to sing like Dan Tracy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, no, Dan, Dan's, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, really a really good contribution to the band, and uh, he was um, the principal songwriter for As Lights Fall, which is the song I sing on the album. When the curtain falls, I'll fade away. He's a great singer too. Himself. He's a great singer. Yeah, always in tune. Always uh, re- really good with high parts as well. On time and in tune. Yeah, two yeah. good qualities in a musician, <laughs> right? And he's also the uh, the band jester. He's always got a joke up his sleeve, hasn't he? <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> There's a few yeah. in the band. Todd's another one. Yeah. Or has any good pranks happened on the road recently, or any <laughs> good? moments you know, um, well, how about how about the uh, air conditioning breaking down when it's 115 <laughs> degrees outside <laughs> and followed two days later by the heating breaking down when it's minus 10 degrees outside right <laughs> I think I've ridden on that bus before <laughs> I think I know that bus <laughs> they keep renting the same bus <laughs> you know I remember the end of the first tour I did with you um, it's the last show in Germany and I'm doing a solo in a song called Primetime, and it's kind of a guitar feature, and I'd probably get a little long-winded as it is, but unbeknownst to me, as I'm soloing, I got my head down, I'm making the faces, pulling the shapes. Alan's got one of those big industrial brooms as if he's the janitor <laughs> sweeping around me, <laughs> and I'm like the last one to see. It's genius. <laughs> oh, my God, man. So, uh, I think that there's would, video of that I hope, I hope there is. I'd, I'd like to see that. Yeah. That's great that that happened and that you did that (laughs) yeah well aside just to zoom out for a second aside from that guitar moment that you just described with jeff or any of these brilliant moments you've just seen here today considering all the great guitar players you've worked with what are some of the moments that really stand out from guitar moments that you remember anything stand out with these guys these george harrisons these dave gilmores anything in your what are some moments Uh, um i I remember when uh we did money and uh, david just doing the solos for that. There's there's a pretty large dynamic between the the loud fuzzy sound and then it comes right down to nothing. Yeah. Um, and it goes. Um, the thing I remember is when we played that live, I would shut the PA off completely and just have the uh, the band playing acoustically, even if it was a large hall, just to give that incredible dynamic of coming right down. Wow. So uh, it would be just his his amp and, and the drums, you know. That's great. And uh, then gradually creep it up again as it as it got, got loud for the second loud section. That's one memory among millions. <laughs> Got to ask you, is there any Beatles studio moment that you that involving guitars? This is your moment where you could be Chris Farley. Do you, do you, you like, remember when you engineered yeah. the Beatles? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know that people... Hey, in the hey what, was it, what were that the Beatles cool. really like? You know? <laughs> but what I, was it like to work with Pink Floyd? Uh, any the, the, like, dreaded, the, the most dreaded question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, trying to avoid that one, but it's like... <laughs> Any tracking, uh, tracking moments? I remember, that stand I remember something. The solo on something taking all day. That was worth so it, was though. A lot, a lot, of, a lot of work went into that. Yeah, yeah, that's a very so take after take, very, very similar. But at the end of the so day, it was, it was good. Yeah, very good. Truly great. Moment. So it was just, just him, Phil McDonald, the engineer, and George Martin and me, four of us. Just, just getting that solo done. What is something that you took away from those years working with? Sir George Martin um, as a producer. I, in a funny sort of way, I think I tr- try to model myself on him. 
I think he was uh, a great producer. Um, he, he he understood musicians. He and uh, he also had perfect pitch, the bastard, you know, <laughs> which I was uh, hmm. hugely envious. Of. You know, you just hear just hear a band playing and say, "Well, I don't like the D minor seventh part." You know, or the you know just just knowing hearing a chord. And I think I remember thinking that was a a great. Uh, a great talent to have that but uh he he was always calm and uh, never never flustered never lost his temper always respected the musicians he was working with and he worked with so many different kinds of players i mean it was the beatles one day and uh, matt monroe you know sort of uh sinatra sounded like the next day so he 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 crossed a lot of bridges and uh like I said, I kind of felt that uh, I wanted to be him in the studio when I started producing. And nowadays, of course, people can produce a record not only in the, in the box on their laptop in their bedroom, but I mean, people are producing some great stuff now. But you you've had your feet in both eras. I would say the previous era being the era when you really had to know the physics of sound and gear and music theory and arranging and all these things that it's not necessarily required now. Is there something that you would recommend people take from the past as far as producing an album now in the box with their plugins and sequencers and autotune? It's get a band. That would be my advice. <laughs> get out of your bedroom and play yeah. with others. Yeah, really. I mean, uh, I've always... I mean, the, uh, Jeff will uh, vouch for this. We, every track was, you know... Th yeah, live in the studio. Three or, four, three or four people playing together. And that's the way to do it. And then do a few overdubs. Yeah, a few repairs, a few dubs, you know. Used a guitar. I don't think uh, anybody felt that we overspent on on time. I think mm. we, it was all fairly efficiently done. I don't and, remember uh, doing more than like two or three takes of a solo. Mm, like, right. He's like, we got it. Wait, one more. No. <laughs> you, usually you get it right right away and then it's down. There was some, there. You know, some producers will, will have a, you know, a, an entire screen full of guitar solos. Oh, well listen to it tomorrow and see how how it goes but i like to make decisions just get 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 it done i don't know how you guys are doing for time i mean we got we got lots of great stuff here but we need to do a couple more questions or something sure then i have to go and talk to some lawyers all right you going <laughs> is that to, this you, evening or well tomorrow? i mean my my whole life has been this yeah. this this legal wrangle what, what's been going on is uh my dear friends my ex studio musicians from the uk have clubbed together with some very shady people and calling themselves the original Alan Parsons Project Band and with, with no permission from me. And my my name is trademarked. Well, so they, 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 can't, a, they just can't do it. You know. I, would, I mean, I have no problem with them doing it. I mean, you, know, they're, you have they're, no problem with them doing the music. Yeah, but, but just just don't try and imply that I'm a part of it. You know, Because everybody, I think everybody... Well, they get everybody thinks I'm there with them, you know, but I'm not. Right, and they're selling tickets and people show up and... Where's Alan? <laughs> it's no, complete I mean, deception. It seems like a no-brainer to me. I'm no attorney, but can't put the name of the person that's not there. Just to double check, if, do you want this part that you just said? On yeah, it's fine. Yeah. On the podcast? Okay. <laughs> you never know with the, the legal stuff, but yeah, I hear what you're saying. I know you were very diplomatic with uh, Lady Antebellum. Like, people try to get an opinion out of you as to whether you feel like uh, that song uh, needs you now sounds like eye in the sky obviously is, is that your opinion i would say yes no comment <laughs> there you go <laughs> my question is this this happens a lot in music and creating and i think a lot of times it's uh 
not intentional. People subconsciously don't realize that they're influenced by some melody that's they heard. I think it's sometimes when that happens, it's 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 sometimes they didn't necessarily associate with the other song at all, and it's just uh, it just came came to them out of the sky. Or you know, they, it can be subliminal. It can be, or it's, it can be yeah, downright you know, a, a straight case of yeah, yeah. Let's make it sound like that song. You know, yeah. Uh, Some songs, I mean, the production is just like the exact same, and mm-hmm. you can tell that's the intention. Yeah, sometimes it's overtly like let's do a knockoff of that. Mm-hmm. There's a song I hear all the time now. It's probably Pharrell, or wait, it sounds like wait a minute, Mister Postman. Like I, yeah. I sing it every time. I'm like. What is this song? It's it's a radio hit right now. I'm sure everybody knows it, Million Seller, but I'm singing this song from the 50s, <laughs> 60s. What are you going to do? Hey, what are you going to do? Sue them all. No. Yeah, it sounds like you even brought a brass band in on Requiem. Like, you're not afraid to, like, bring in every instrumentalist on earth onto your records. Yeah, we, we um, when we started doing Requiem, we... We started to say, "Hey, this uh, this sounds like a TV theme," and we realized it was it was Perry Mason, but it's not in not in the least ripped off. It just evokes that yeah. that sort of era and that sound. And the brass band it was um, Todd Cooper's brother, Bo, did that arrangement, and we did it in here again through a studio in Nashville, and it was magic. It was, it was really, really fun to do. Great players, and, and yeah, first time I ever put a sort of big band brass arrangement on a record before. I'd never done it. Yeah, it turned out amazing. Mm. Yeah, it's got a great vibe to it. Great guitar solo. What what do you have going on? It's kind of like a 6-8 feel or something. Yeah, on that one I was playing a Telecaster. I think on the middle pickup. I did some... I remember stealing whatever the horn lick was right before it starts, right? I think it's that kind of... That kind of thing, you know. Well, when my solo starts, it goes from E to A7. I think over Todd's, it's a one chord. So it's kind of nice I get to, you know, hit the changes, so... Over the A, right? Yeah. Some kind of some kind of thing. Simple, really. Just rock and roll. <laughs> what were your main? I got to get a little, just a quick nerd list here. What was your main gear for the record, or you know, did I don't know if you had one main guitar amp set up or? Well, for that particular song, it was. Um, Pro Reverb 1967 with a um, Japanese reissue telly that I love. Like on the neck pickup? Yeah. Could have been on the middle pick. Yeah, I guess I was on the neck pickup on that. And that one we cut at in Nashville with Source Connect the day before you did your brass. Because it was just a couple little leftover things. I'd forgotten that. I thought it was here. Uh, yeah. I, I remembered it as being here, but all right. Yeah, that one was there. That. And uh, and then I think we just did some acoustic for as lights fall or something like that and one other thing. Right. Um, gear wise, otherwise, I remember using a twin here a lot with pedals. And then I think one of the sessions I used a Marshall Mark II head with pedals. Other than that one session, we did everything here. 
and most of it was live in the studio except for the guitar solos. I thought Fender Twins are sometimes tricky to use pedals with and get a good drive tone. Okay. I have no problem with them. You've always... Yeah. You get them back line on the road sometimes, or...? I used to. I always felt like it was the, the best clean platform to put pedals in front of because it won't break up. So if you put delay or anything in front of it, it's going to be clean. Yeah. And, you know, if you get some warm Jensen or Oxford speakers, sounds great. And oftentimes I'll... When I used to do some solo touring, I would uh, get a twin plug-in with a 412 cab, 25-watt greenbacks with pedals. Sounds amazing. Did you, Jeff, being a reformed Ohio hard-rocking metal teenager, probably cut in class to do <laughs> rock and roll, <laughs> you, were a, you, came, you started off from a pretty hard rocker. Did you ever dream that you'd be doing something like playing with Alan Parsons? Like what? Well, I was, a, I was a fan of everything. I mean, by the time I was cutting classes in high school, I was listening to Alan Holsworth, you know, IOU record, and really into, you know, Steve Kahn and John Schofield. And I gave up on hard rock in the 80s because it became cheesy with the advent of MTV. So I'm a 70s guy, really. Ah. You know, I don't like 80s Aerosmith. I like 70s Aerosmith. I don't like 80s Van Halen. I like 70s Van Halen. You know, it's just, or whatever artist. It seems like once... MTV came out that everybody kind of lost the plot a little bit. You know, it just changed. Everything has to change musically for better, for worse, or for whatever. Right. Like, Mutt Lang's a great producer, but it's not my thing. I prefer, you know, the uh, the other, you know, if I'm listening to ACDC, I like the Bon Scott era with their brother producing, you know. It's more raw. Interesting. And so, but I was a fan of, you know, who's not a fan of, uh, you know, the Beatles and the Who, and those are the bands I loved, and turns out that, you know, some of Alan's favorite artists as well, so, and I mean, in Toledo, growing up, we had all those songs on the radio, all all the Alan hits, stuff I didn't even remember I knew, like when I was going through the list, like, Breakdown, hmm, I was still like, I know this song, I've known this song all my life. You know, oh, yeah. so Alan needs to, he needs to come to Toledo and play because there's a lot of people there that are waiting. So, I mean, you know, to answer your question, it's a, it's a, it's a dream come true. And, um, and it's really oh, wonderful that we're doing a record together and that we got something in the can and, you know, so it's amazing. It is an amazing record. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Last question. Could you just tell us what you were going for with your home studio here? I mean, I'm just looking at it as someone who has a, a laptop and a Pro Tools rig. <laughs> Well, I see. Tell me um, about this board, first of all, and then what, what your goals were beyond the board. I mean, if you're going to build a brand new studio, you've, you've, got, you've, got, you've got to start with the console, really. And uh, this, is, <clears throat> this is the culmination of Rupert Neve's entire career. Designing consoles, it's, um, it's got all the, uh, all the sonic features that uh, he's become famous for over the yeah, years. Yeah, it looks like a brand new Cadillac, you know, compared to yeah. the old, old, old Neve. Now, what's, does it have a model name? It's a fifty eighty eight, and uh, these speakers I've had uh, I've had these twenty years now, and they still they still sound great. They were using them at Abbey Road when I was the boss there, so uh, that carried through to uh, to you. And you primarily run Pro Tools. Yeah, I mean, the, the, of course, the, the console is is an anal- the perfect analog front end, but nobody nobody uses tape machines anymore, or yeah. especially analog tape machines. No, right. but but Pro Tools HD is you know as good as it gets really. And it will continue to improve. We'll, we'll one day we'll laugh at uh, how we thought, uh, you know, analog tape had the had the magic that you can't get with digital. We'll we'll find we'll find it in the end. I sure. like that. You're definitely you've got like I said, you're 
old school and new school. Best of both worlds. No, the tie is safe.